Welcome to another episode of the Mindset Athlete Podcast with me, James Roberts, transformational coach, two-time Paralympian, and TEDx speaker. I have another awesome episode for you today, so let's get straight into it. And on today's show, I've got Ashley Lynn Olson. At age 14, Ashley was paralyzed in a horrible car wreck that took the life of her father, physically disabled her mother, and injured her younger sister. That one moment transformed her entire world, but it did not dampen her spirit. She is a writer, educational speaker. She loves to travel. And in 2006, she launched wheelchairtraveling.com as a resource for others with disabilities. Today, about 25,000 people each month visit that website for accessible travel information. She has tons of travel adventure stories to discuss, including her solo trip to Japan and and New Zealand and zip lining in Ecuador, all while paralyzed. It was recently featured in Positive Exposures Connects virtual interview series, the Christopher and Dave Re-Foundation website, Sandy's Cleans Conversations with Creative Women, and The Right Reflections 2021 Winter Newsletter. So welcome on to the show, Ashley. Thank you for having me. Thrilled to be here. The pleasure is absolutely all mine. So if we we start, uh, obviously, before your accident, what I didn't mention in in your introduction, you, you were... Um, a on scholarship to go to Stanford University. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. I was on set to get a scholarship um, to Stanford. I had a scout looking at me, investigating all my skills, ready to sign me. I had the grades to go to Stanford, so it was pretty much pretty much a sure. Sure deal. I had worked very hard to to get to that point. And what was it like to kind of have that? Well, I won't say taken away from you because if you look at the grander sense of um, what we're talking about, obviously your mother was gravely uh, injured and you lost your father. But from the sporting context, how did that feel to lose what you'd worked very very hard to achieve? <sighs> Well, I definitely felt extremely lost. I didn't know how my life was going to progress. I didn't know what my plan was going to be because I had literally worked since third or fourth grade with my mindset that I was going to get a basketball scholarship because I knew my parents, um, you know, finances were, were tight. And so I wanted to be able to relieve them of that burden and provide them with a scholarship. And I just love the sport of basketball so much. So it just made perfect sense to me. And so I just had been working, like I said, from third or fourth grade to, to get this basketball scholarship. So when that was no longer an option, it was pretty devastating. Um, It was, it was even difficult to even, go inside a basketball gym to hear the sound of basketballs, to smell the rubber from a basketball, to feel a basketball. Um, It was, it was, it was a surreal moment because it was just like this life that I, that I knew so well that I could no longer be a part of. So what was the catalyst for you to transition in a way from, from basketball 
to to wanting to travel the world in a sense well sports definitely helped me get in the right mindset in order to make that transition because I had learned from basketball and, you know, training for other sports as well. I played soccer and volleyball and was quite good at those sports as well. And I just knew, okay, if I'm not good at something, I just have to practice at it, you know, and you just, you're not going to, sometimes you can pick something up right away and be good at it and finesse those skills, but sometimes you have to work at it. And sometimes it takes weeks. Sometimes it can take months in order to really find that rhythm. And I really had that underlying foundation within me and the underlying foundation of being patient with myself, knowing that, yes, this takes time, you know, not getting frustrated with myself. You know, if I, if I miss that basketball shot, you know, like it's okay, there's going to be another shot. And just like when I was trying to learn how to go down curbs or, you know, get myself dressed again, it's like, okay, you know, like sometimes some days were good. Some days were bad. Some days I got it. Some days I learned new tricks. Some days I kind of took a few steps back, but I knew just to keep going and it would, I would find my own rhythm and I would find my own, my own steps. Um, and it comes, when it comes to wheelchair life, kind of an odd way of, of putting it, but yeah, I just had to take it step by step day by day, um, doing physical therapy as well. I was really good at motivating myself, working with the physical therapist and on, on alone on myself. Um, again, using these skills that I learned from my earlier days as an athlete, knowing how to push myself, knowing what my limits were, knowing, you know, if I'm tired just to do maybe just a couple more reps, you know, just to push yourself just a little bit more and, and try that. And I feel like that stamina pushed me in my wheelchair traveling life um, to explore what, whatever I could possibly explore. Um, and I have definitely pushed myself to the limits, um, as yeah, to the absolute extreme traveling the world, pushing myself, um, falling out of my wheelchair, having to get out of my wheelchair, getting myself in all kinds of precarious predicaments. Um, but again, I have that motivation just to, you know, keep going to not be scared to not give up on myself, you know, and just talk myself through and give myself the patience, like, okay, you know, you fell out of your wheelchair and how are you going to get back up? Okay. Like one step, two step, you know, and just work it slowly and, you know, and just not immediately just give up. You just, you just have to keep going. You have to keep swimming. There's, there's another game around the corner. <laughs> True. And what I did not ask you, Ashley, was what, what type of paralysis have you got just for the, for the, this is so they have some type of idea okay i i can't walk at all i have a, a t11 t12 spinal cord injury so it's uh at the top of my top of my thigh um i feeling starts getting um fuzzy when you start going further down but yeah i can't walk at all i can't stand on my own just full-on wheelie life is that is that t t11 t12 complete or incomplete um the doctors told me it was a complete but over the years i've just learned that you know doctors doctors definitely do their best but they don't know everything especially when it comes to the the spine and the magic of the body and how the body can heal itself because 
even though I was technically at first classified as a complete, every other physical therapist and doctor that I've spoken to over the years, um, speaking about my injury and where I've started and how much I've recovered and just how much I'm able to feel, um, they definitely think that, oh, maybe you are an incomplete. So jury's out. I appreciate your honesty. And the reason I asked that, and I, I'm, I'm, I give some context for the listeners as to why I know that. Obviously, I've, 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 I've known a lot of athletes with different impairments down the years. So it's normally when it comes to spinal injuries, they, they want to outdo each other on how they got their accident, you know, how they, how they achieve their, 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 their impairment. So yes, that's why yes, I know I, the difference I, between incomplete and complete. Yes, actually, I, I can kind of relate to that because um, as an athlete, um, I, you know, I was just in a car accident with my family. And even though it was traumatic, it's it's not really a, a very exciting athletic story. It's just more on like the drama side. And so actually, when I first became paralyzed, I was 15 and working at um, a gym and, you know, organizing racquetball and activities and stuff like that. And there was always these, they said racquetball guys that would always come over and talk to me and ask me questions. And they're like, Oh, you're like, well, what's, what's wrong with you anyways? You know, you don't seem like you should be in a wheelchair. And I was still very new to those questions. And so I kind of, maybe I was feeling a little bit sassy that day, but I was just like, well, I was I can't remember if I said I was skiing or mountain climbing. Either way, I was doing something really more dangerous and tried to do like a flip or a jump or something like that. And that's how, and I told them I wasn't even paralyzed. I told them that I just broke my legs and that's why I was in a wheelchair, which ended up being problematic because they kept on asking me then later down the road as the weeks progressed, like, okay, like when are your legs going to heal? Let's go play racquetball. When are we going to get you up and play racquetball? And and then it just got a little awkward, <laughs> but I can definitely relate to wanting to have that, you know, that, that extreme athletic story, you know, that, oh my gosh, yeah, I was jumping out of an airplane or, you know, I was zip lining, but, but now I've actually done all that stuff post my paralysis. Out of all the trips that you've done then, Ashley, what was the most exhilarating then? Um, exhilarating. I mean, what you were kind of mentioning at the talk in, in the very beginning with intro, those three trips definitely come to mind, um, Japan, Ecuador, and, and New Zealand. Just because when I went to Japan, it was my first time traveling internationally um, by myself. Um, I had originally planned to go with a friend, but 24 hours into the trip, he had an emergency meeting back in the States and had to leave. And instead of going back with him, because I had taken a very long flight out to Japan, I wanted to really explore this area. It had been on my bucket list for a decade, well over a decade. Um, we wrote down a couple of, of phrases like, where's the elevator? Or I need a taxi. And um, just in case charades in English, you know, couldn't get me very far, which it did. I mean, I only had to use, you know, these phrases in Japanese maybe once or twice, but um, because getting around was just a dream in Japan. It was, it was fantastic. But yeah, like I said, my friend left Japan after 24 hours. I was there by myself, did not speak the language. And I was just there by myself on my own, figuring it out. And it was absolutely exhilarating. It was such an incredible, memorable experience. 
And then of course, um, recently in 2020, I went to New Zealand, which was also a dream of mine since even before I became paralyzed to go to New Zealand. And I rented a car there and I traveled all by myself, getting in and out of the car, traveling on the wrong side of the road, going hiking everywhere, falling out of my wheelchair, going on adventures, um, you know, helicopter and ATV paragliding, all the, all the fun outdoor adventure things of New Zealand, just very rewarding, rewarding because before, um, like I said, I wanted to go there even before my accident. Um, but then after my accident, my older sister had gone there and she had sh shared pictures with me. And I was like, oh God, I, I still would love to go there. But looking at the pictures, my mind wasn't mentally there. It, it said, oh, I, I don't think you can do this. You know, there's, you know, especially you couldn't travel there by yourself, you know, getting your wheelchair in and out of the car and look at these trails. They're still kind of rocky. They're not smoothly paved. And I don't think you can do that. Well, you know, about 10 years later, I did it. I did it all by myself. All the cards came, you know, came to be. And I said, I don't care. Like, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to figure this out. I'm in the right state of mind. And just making the reservations to everything was just a dream. Everybody knew what I was talking about. There was no confusion about hand controls or rolling showers. You know, I didn't feel like I was speaking a different language. They knew exactly what I needed, exactly, you know, how to make my trip successful. And it was, it was absolutely epic and so very rewarding, very tiring, but very, very, very rewarding. And then of course, um, my trip to Ecuador, which was just incredible. I'm, I'm obsessed with, with Southeast Asia and I'm obsessed with South America. I mean, I feel like in those parts of the, the world, those are like, I don't know, two areas. I love to see so many places in the world, but I know for some reason I'm very much drawn to these two areas, maybe because there's not much accessibility there, but <laughs> for some reason I just am. And, um, Ecuador was again, a first trip just to South America. I had no idea about access or I knew that access was horrible or non-existent. But again, I was with my, I was with my boyfriend who was also in a wheelchair and the two of us uh, went on a tour together and traveled all around Ecuador. Finding accessible bathrooms was definitely an interesting task, but we, we definitely, we made it work and had an incredible time, went zip lining, um, in Ecuador, across a gorge by a waterfall, was like piggy was piggybacked by locals, you know, to even get up to the zip lining area, uh, you know, up this very steep, dirt, muddy pathway that was super sketchy and scary. But you know, we were there, we were doing it, you know, like this is going to happen. And um, that day was also then followed by an epic volcano explosion in the area. Um, which we got to sit and watch um, on our patio at, at the hostel that we were staying at. Just like all the other locals, they had their lawn chairs out and watching it like fireworks. Just this gorgeous, gorgeous display of fire and nature and, and the power and the energy was just absolutely incredible. So definitely first come to mind, like those are definitely the first three trips that, that stand out as being just life changing for me. And you mentioned New Zealand and being there in 2020. Did you not get caught up in their lockdown then? Um, I did a little bit, um, but for the most part in New Zealand, I didn't. I I knew that, you know, there was this flu kind of going around, but there wasn't really that many tourists. And I was just doing my thing. I was in the outdoors, 
99.9% of the time. And it just wasn't even on my mind. I didn't even turn the radio on. I was so enthralled with the natural scenery around me that there was actually one point, I think it was like a, a week. I stayed there for three weeks and a week before um, I was, le- I was about to go home or, you know, go to my next destination. Um, I realized I'm like, Ashley, you haven't even turned on the radio this entire trip. It didn't even dawn on me. I love music. I love music, but it just wasn't even on the radar whatsoever. The the scenery and the smells and the sounds were just so invigorating and so entertaining that I didn't even bother playing music. Well, I'm I'm probably fortunate that I've I've got a scenery that's similar to New Zealand and living in North Wales. That um, and I can't think of what the book is called, not The Hobbit, but the other one. I can't think what it is. Lord of the Rings. Yeah, that's what it is. As in, obviously, the film is based in New Zealand, but the book is based of where of um National Park, but about forty minutes from where I live. So the the scene and the similarities between the two countries are very similar. So for me is probably on the bucket list with probably Australia, but it's, it's even for, well, it's far away from the U S but from Europe is even worse. Um, so it's, so it's nice that you, you, you kind of put comparisons. Well, I think Hawaii would probably be something, something similar because it's, it's one of those kind of tropical islands. It's definitely, it's a tropical island, but it's definitely not like New Zealand. I mean, it's, it's, they're definitely two different animals, I think, in terms of where they're located and access to them, possibly. Um, Maybe New Zealand is just slightly more remote, you know, or more Europeans go there. I'm not sure, but I definitely, there's a different vibe. There's definitely a different vibe to, to each location. There's definitely... Um, some similarities don't get me wrong with the tropicalness and they're definitely there's chill there's chillness and there's some great spirituality at both locations you know you can feel the energy like the liveliness of the island um, definitely has its own unique spirits for sure um, but I definitely see like Hawaii I feel like is, is a little bit more on like the resort like luxury like tour side as opposed to New Zealand is more on like the adventure rugged outdoor side um, there are some beautiful spots in New Zealand. Of course, there's wine tasting and there's, you know, some gorgeous resorts you can stay and you can certainly do a more Hawaii, just all luxurious, you know, vacation in New Zealand. But it also has the opportunity to do like a lot of just really just dirty, get out there in the middle of nowhere, you know, exploration. Is that more your 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 type of um, traveling to, to kind of be, do it more ruggedly? I do like the rugged environment. Um, I like environments that are a little bit more secluded. You know, I like kind of the places that aren't just absolutely packed with tourists, you know, Um, like when I went to Japan, I went all around the, went to every single um, Providence in in Tokyo, which there's a number of them, like over a dozen, Um, went to, I mean, and I went all around every single Providence, you know, in, in great detail. Um, but then when I went out to Kyoto, much further out, I, oh gosh, it was more in the country with the river and the nature. And you, you there were still little bits of city. But yes, I'm, I'm in definitely a nature gal. I love being immersed in nature. Well, it's probably more more in, in tune with 
how would I describe this? What you would think of typical Jap- Japan of 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 you know that that their 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 way of living um, with I can't remember what kind of houses, but in terms yeah, with, of like people, the, with fishing boats and such and, 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 and things like that. You 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 think Japan? You think Mount Fuji? Okay, Tokyo does spring to mind uh, with that massive big um, pedestrian crossing. Um, yeah. So. For me, it was it was probably still on the bucket list because it's uh, mm-hmm. from the sporting side of things. People said, "Well, would you would you would like to have competed in Tokyo?" Like, oh yeah, no. I, ideally, yes, but for me, the 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 allure of going to Japan is just because of of what you mentioned earlier in the episode of the the, the advance, just their way of thinking of we want to be. I don't know. 10 steps ahead of the of the West though, in terms of anything that's technical technological advancement for for the better of uh of of, of humanity they, they were looking at so that so for the Paralympics especially they were looking at okay what could we put for infrastructure for the games but what is it going to do for the population long term so they I think they were looking at it big uh big picture. For how they're going to impact like the, the their disabled community, which is probably I'd say probably, probably light years light years ahead of definitely the Chinese light years light years ahead of every country on on the planet. I, I remember going there and learning that Japan actually was the first country to install the truncated domes, which are the yellow bumps that you see at crosswalks to help people who are blind uh, to navigate from one side to the other. Um, Not only did they have um, curb cutouts, but they would actually have strips near train stations leading to elevators, leading into the train station. So people could even further navigate to the train stations. And I found that to be extremely helpful just because if I, you know, knew that I was close to a train station, you know, I'm like, I'm just around the corner. No, I'm just a block or two away. Where's this train station? I would start looking for these truncated domes or these pathways on the ground. I'm like, yes, follow that. It's going to take me to the train station. Thank you. And they did that, um, I believe in like the early seventies, early seventies, which is just phenomenal. So just way beyond, way beyond, you know, Anybody else, you know, again, thinking about the betterment of of everybody. And you you said that perfectly. And that's exactly the feeling that I got when I was in Japan. No matter where I was, no matter what I had to do, I always felt like I was being looked after, you know, and I felt that way about everybody else. Everybody else was just kind of, oh, like, do you need help with that? Like, are you lost? Like, you know, do you need help picking that up? You know, that you just some item that you just dropped, you know, everybody was just wanting to ensure that everybody could get to wherever they needed to go. And there was just like this beautiful flow of understanding and, and compassion of just keeping traffic and the people flowing and moving, which was just spectacular. And I feel like the the general respect of not using elevators, unless you really needed to use an elevator in Japan was definitely very prominent. Um, I remember multiple times um, using an elevator and seeing elderly people I mean, easily 80 plus years old, walking up a flight of stairs of like a hundred stairs, like in a train station. Yes, they were walking extremely slow, 
I mean, not extremely slow, but they were taking their time, you know, one step at a time, but they weren't going to use the elevator. They were using their bodies. And that was so something so refreshing about the Japanese is that, yes, even the elderly, you know, they just keep using what they have. They, they walk up the stairs if, if they can. Um, they're just in such great shape over there because of that. They just use what they have. Um, in addition to the elevators, um, I found the same great fortune with um, accessible bathrooms, which at train stations, I mean, at malls and train stations, you could find an accessible bathroom and they were always separate from the rest of the toilets. And so I love that feature because it really forced a person like, okay, do I actually really need to use this bathroom? And there was this like almost public shaming going on that like, yes, like, do you actually really need to use that? Um, Cause sometimes even that the accessible bathrooms would even have cameras, you know, like watching who goes in and out and they would actually have that door locked and, I remember like waiting at a particular door and trying to get in. I'm like, oh, I guess there's somebody, somebody's in there. And all of a sudden I hear this buzz, the door's unlocked. Somebody was watching me, you know, and allowed me to, to access the bathroom because they only wanted people who actually needed it to use it, which was just phenomenal, which I never get that in, in, in the States at all. I mean, I usually 99.9% .9 of the time, even if there's like 20 open stalls, the one handicap stall will be in use. Why do you, why do you think that is though? I don't know if it's Americans and like being like ashamed of like going to the bathroom and wanting like the extra privacy, or maybe it's their body size and wanting to be larger. Um, but I've seen petite people use, you know, the, the handicap stall cause it's, you know, way in the back and, um, maybe it's a little hair a touch of entitlement i don't know that they just want like the biggest and the best you know stall or something i i i i'm not i haven't been able to 100 percent figure that out That's but the, i do have those theories it does the same thing at the end of the day <laughs> it's the flushes yes yes and you're like yes i just need to, to you know go number one you know like i've been waiting for half an hour while you go number two, you know, taking your sweet time, you know, even though there's 15 other open stalls that you could have used, but okay. And then maybe, maybe it's just kind of this, this mindset too, where I feel like because of like the ADA too, that maybe some people think like, oh, well, I'm disabled enough. I, I, I have the right to use this stall if they are starting to get a little older or something or, um, yeah, there's there's definitely some theories, but haven't been able to, you know, get a firm answer on on that. And and would you be in sport, Ashley? Was there any chance that you would ever have looked at the Paralymp to compete at the Paralympics, or was it off the radar because of it being not having the the the, the national focus, especially in the US, that the Olympics would get? Are you saying why I didn't? Yes. Um, I think for me, um, working so hard in basketball and basically touching my dream, you know, like meeting the scout, you know, like put like all the pieces were just in place. I just had to keep doing, continue what I was doing and everything, you know, my dream was just in reach. And I feel like because it was so close um, and then being in high school, 
I feel like my mindset just wasn't in the, okay, I need to train for the Paralympics, you know, mindset and then switch my whole game. At that point, I was just trying to, okay, like, what am I going to do with my life? I need to be able to put on my pants, like, you know, each morning, if I have to, you know, go to the bathroom, you know, during school hours, I have to be able to take my pants on and off. You know, I was just horribly like, like high anxiety, just like top charts, anxiety, like about that particular thing going to the bathroom, you know, during school hours, you know, because it would just take me a good while, even though I had, you know, bigger pants, bigger pants at the time, you know, and they were like windbreakers, you know, and they were generally easy to get on and off. Um, at that time, I, it was still a learning phase of, okay, how do I get this on and off and how do I move and how long is it going to take me? But I remember every single time I would have to use the restroom at school. I would just have such high anxiety, you know, about that. Oh my goodness. You know, all these people think I, I take so, so long to go to the bathroom and I'm not like everybody else. So I feel like when I was in high school, um, it was just kind of do or die, just like survival mode, just like in high school, like, okay, how do I just survive high school with my sanity and not want to just kill myself and just end this all and just give up pretty much. Cause there definitely were a couple of moments that, you know, I did question that. I'm like, do I, is, can I keep going like this? You know, it, is this gonna, is this all gonna work out? You know, everybody says, oh, just wait 10 years, you know, this too shall pass, you're gonna get it. And it just, there was, you know, the first five years was pretty painful. You know, there was definitely some, some, some serious painful moments, um, some really, really embarrassing moments um, as well, where I, you know, I didn't feel like I was the teenager that, you know, my girlfriends were, I couldn't operate like they were, I couldn't jump over the backpacks and the quad and flirt with boys like I wanted to and go to school dances and all that. I was just trying to be the best that I could be in the situation that I was now currently in. And so train, like getting the mindset of then, you know, switching sports even, you know, just was not even something that I could, I could process at the time. I did consider it, you know, I did kind of, oh yeah, that would be kind of cool, but my heart, my heart just wasn't, my heart just wasn't in it. I just felt like that training, like that athletic part of me, like will always be there, but training in like a competition, maybe like that was, that was the end of, end of that journey for me. So for um, you, I think we're quite similar. Is that all in or not? Yeah, Exactly. And, and especially with basketball, people are like, oh, you should do wheelchair basketball, wheelchair basketball. And I tried that and it was just heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking because, I mean, I, I definitely learned skills and I learned how to play and pick up the ball with my wheel and all that kind of stuff. And I learned the rules, but the amount how physical I was able to get for that playing basketball, I mean, I would be flying on the ground. If there was a loose ball, like I would have bruises all up and down my legs and my hips, you know, I was so scrappy and tough. I was the best def defensive player, you know, so I could even take like the really tough, really tall girls, you know, and get elbowed in the face and stuff like that. And I could take it and, you know, but then also at the same time be shooting three pointers, you know, down at the other side of the court. 
And, and I just loved, I loved it so much. I mean, every summer I'd be doing basketball camps and to me, like wheelchair basketball was a completely different game. It wasn't basketball. It wasn't basketball. It was wheelchair basketball. It is a completely different game. Yes, there are some similarities. You're still using a basketball, but how you're using your body and the mechanics, everything is just nine day difference. And I just felt like, okay, time to use, you know, my passions and skills and in a different way. But, you know, growing up as an athlete, I'm always an athlete. Like I always have to keep my, my competitive nature in check. You know, I I call it the tiger in the cage. You know, if we do like board games or, or anything else, I mean, it's bocce ball for God's sakes. I mean, it's just like, okay, Ashley, let's keep the tiger, you know, like let's keep the tiger, you know, in the cage. We don't need to have the tiger come out. You know, because then it gets, then it gets crazy. Then Ashley's super competitive, you know, face comes on and it's game time, seriousness. And it's just, you know, we're not playing anymore. It's not playing anymore. It's, it's game time. It's game time. There's a difference between play and game. And so I feel like as I've gotten older, I just, I enjoy the, the play more than trying to one up another person or, you know, feel like I'm, I'm, you know, better than, than somebody else. I enjoy the, the commonality and the experience of whatever the activity is and the sharing with the other people or whatever the environment is. Yeah. But you agree life's a game to some extent. Yes and no. I mean, I, I guess, um, it depends on what, what philosophical hat I'm wearing that day. (laughs) Um, I mean, sometimes I feel like it's just kind of, we're just floating along. And sometimes I feel like, yeah, sometimes you're floating along, but sometimes you do have to make a couple moves. You know, you have to be paying attention to make sure a ball doesn't smack you in the face, you know, when you're not paying attention, you know, you have to, you have to look alive. You have to be conscious and be looking alive for opportunities and, um, you know, just life in general. Well, I think I think if we go deeper than that, actually, it, it's it's like you say. I, I would probably put it in maybe a little bit deeper than that in terms of it's a little bit of both. In terms of you talking about opportunity, it's not going to be handed to you. I think some people expect it to. Okay, uh, if we go back to what you're talking about entitlement, I deserve it. It's like no, even even I think every sportsman must know that we probably play down the magnitude of the hard work. It's not luck. It's not a lack lack of judgment. There's been a, there's been some sort of sacrifice that's had to come before, before obviously it's hard work. And obviously that's, you you reap, you reap the rewards of, of, of that. So I think, the point that I'm making is, is a little bit of both. Sometimes you have to go out and take it that opportunity yes you do have to some yeah like i said look alive but enjoy the journey at the same time don't always be looking for opportunities you know don't just have that being like the main focus of life and just what can i get what can i gain how can i make myself bigger and stronger and and whatnot um you can be aware of them but you know in your gut okay yes this is the opportunity for me there could be an opportunity that presents itself but you don't have to take every single thing that throws 
out at you. You can be selective and allow yourself to shine when something that really speaks to you, you know, grabs your focus. And I feel like that's not very American um, of you, though. <laughs> it's not the stereotypical American to step into the spotlight when it's it's, it's the time. It's I'm going to grab the spotlight and I'm going to make it shine brightly. That's the stereotype that you know everybody around the world would think of an American as the um, borderline arrogant, yeah, showboating and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, and there's there's definitely some people you know in America like that. But I definitely feel. I don't know, the past like five years, 10 years. I mean, that's definitely been been changing and shifting a lot, especially with like my generation and these younger generation, just the empathy level in all of us is just so high, you know? And I feel like it's becoming more and more of a society where people just see you as a human being, you know? Like I was at the grocery store the other day and first 15 years of, um, after I became paralyzed, when I would be at the grocery store, almost every single time somebody would come up to me and give me a comment like, wow, good for you. Good for you for getting out and, you know, taking care of yourself. Like good for you for going to the grocery store. Good for you for pumping that gas, you know? And it would just kind of startle me like, yeah, okay. And so just the other day, um, I was in the grocery store and um, I was reaching for something and it was just slightly out of my reach, but I could definitely reach it. You know, I was like stretching. I was going to reach it. Um, and somebody said like, oh, hey, excuse me. And I immediately, my brain was just like, oh, yeah, they're going to ask me for help or whatnot. You know, I think I was just kind of in this. I went to the grocery store hungry, which you should never do. And so, yeah, I was like a little extra feisty. And, you know, I kind of like turn around, you know, like abruptly, like, like what, you know, and I'm not really hearing what she's saying. And she was just complimenting me on my hat. You know, she was just like, oh, I really like your hat. Like, I really like that design on that hat. You know, and it was um, the sacred geometry, you know, so we were just talking about that and whatnot and I had nothing to do. I didn't feel any energy or pity about like my wheelchair, me reaching for something. You know, she didn't even like ask like, oh yeah, by the way, can I help you with that? You know, it wasn't even on, on her radar. It was, she was just connecting with me, seeing me as a human being, instead of being a human that needed help. You know, she was just seeing me first, which was very, very, very refreshing. And I've definitely been seeing more and more and more of that. So hopefully that stereotype, maybe that will die in this next, you know, couple decades or, you know, change significantly. But I feel like in terms of of media, I mean, media in America is just horrible. So I feel like the media will still use their power to kind of play that um, play that game of propping some people up, you know, just because it helps them sell advertising and makes other people money. So what what so what's it like for you now watching? Are you able to watch basketball now? Have you been able to disattach from from the sport as you being the basketball player? I would say the past couple of years, it's there has been a significant difference. Um, I still get, you know, twinges, but I feel like now that I'm like I'm almost forty, so I'm almost like officially like a hundred percent an adult. Um, I feel like that maturity level and that time and that space 
has allowed me just to appreciate, you know, that time and space that I had in my life and to honor that and to love it, you know, and to cherish it um, and hold it so very close to my heart um, while I actually see a basketball game. You know, it's something that I still like, I, I relate to and I immediately still connect with and all those memories, you know, and smells come flooding back, but it's not something that makes me cringe out of sadness. It's something that I now, you know, I I really cherish that I'm happy that I'm, that I had that experience, you know, in my life, that basketball was such a strong part in my life. And I don't have any regrets in that, in that matter. You think, because you were talking about anxiety in high school, did you think at the time you have had, in a sense, a how would I describe this? Opportunity taken away from you. So be it, you know, you, you had a path laid out ahead of you of going to college, not getting a really experience high school sports and being ultimately what, what it would play on people's you know, mental health, mental well-being of, you know, the clicks of being it in well you would have been with the jocks but be it because of having your accident it's being kind of taken away from you um so you're saying that because basketball was kind of yeah stripped away from me that that in itself caused caused some anxiety because I didn't have have my own place well, that's a that's how I'm trying to word it. Did you did you kind of you, you said talking about being a bit lost? Do you think that obviously exacerbated it a little bit more the anxiety because you knew where you you knew where you stood when you had full function of your your body? Do you think yes. once you were in the wheelchair, some of that's been 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 lost? Yeah, I definitely. I mean, I, I suffered some anxiety just because. I wasn't hundred percent comfortable in my skin um, at that time and space because yeah, I, I was still trying to, you know, I was going through puberty, you know, and I was experiencing things just like every other teenager, you know, and I had a boyfriend at the time and, you know, was intimate with him. And so like going through that whole process and um, yeah, just really not find having, yeah, a click or, or a space. I, honestly, in high school, I felt like, everybody kind of knew me because they knew what happened to me. And I was just kind of bounce around to, you know, different various groups. You know, I never really had one particular group that I was a hundred percent a part of. I would say maybe by my senior year, there was maybe a couple groups that like, I definitely hung out significantly more, but, um, and there's people that I hung out with significantly more, but it I still was just kind of felt like a butterfly, you know, just kind of floating around, like, wanting to find my, my place of where, where I belong, where I kind that, of fit in. Do you think and, that helped, do you, have, do you think that's helped you long-term though, to be that social butterfly? I think it was needed because, um, also be, before my accident, I had always kind of struggled with, um, social anxiety. Um, I was always kind of more introverted and a little bit more on the shy side and sports really allowed me to come out of my shell, you know, engage with other people in short, direct ways where I didn't have to, you know, sit and have a two hour conversation, but I could have, you know, a five minute 
talk about a play or something like that and then move on and, you know, create some space and whatnot. And I really like that, but it gave me um, some foundation with social skills in order to, you know, to speak to people. And I believe that was also super crucial. Yeah. Of, of getting me out in general of, of, you know, my, my introvertness and being so shy. And then it was just ironic then it, that I became paralyzed and everybody knew me and there was just no possible way for me to hide ever, ever, no matter where I went ever. And throughout the entire town that I was living in, everybody could, you know, there was only one other person in a wheelchair in that whole town. So it's like, it's either going to be this chick or this chick. So it's like, everybody knew me everywhere. And that was at first, oh my gosh, so overwhelming. Like, oh my goodness, that was just a lot to deal with um, on top of everything else that I was, you know, trying to deal with and process. But long-term, yes, it broke me out of my shell. It forced me to, you know, kind of face some of these fears, you know, like whatever, whatever you resist persists kind of a thing. Um, whatever you run from, you know, it's just going to attach to you stronger and, and harder. So you really have to face those, face those fears. And I feel like, yeah, that social anxiety was definitely something that I was, you know, developing and, and growing into, but compared to some of my other friends, you know, I definitely lack some, some confidence and this definitely forced me to speak up and speak up with what what works for me with what I need, what's right, what's wrong, you know, like how to assist me. I had to be very vocal with myself and understand, um, you know, not only just what everybody else thought was right for me, but I had to also then go internally and be like, wait, like, is this, is this the right decision? Is this the right path for me? And like, really understand that connection between um, what I know in my gut and then expressing that or manifesting that externally. I think people be find it odd that you say you're introverted and lack confidence. Um, I can relate. <laughs> I can relate. So, um, because I was probably I what I wasn't. I wouldn't say I had social anxiety, but I was introverted, and I would be that person to stand in the corner and wait and wait and wait, which annoyed my mum. <laughs> I think that's social anxiety, my friend. I didn't know what anxiety was until like five, five or so years ago. I'm like, oh, so being really shy and kind of being away from everybody. Oh, okay. That has some levels of, of anxiety, but it's just a word. It's just a word. Well, that's, well, that's, well anxiety is good as well because ultimately yes you wouldn't you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to exist if you didn't have anxiety. That's why that's why what I said to people is the difference between different levels of mental health, you know, depression, anxiety, bipolar. Anxiety is probably almost easy to get over because it depends on what it is, but everybody has it because if we just use the example of, of crossing a road. Oh yeah, definitely. Really had anxiety, that, that, extra, that, that extra energy to do it, you know, like it, yeah, as an athlete before games, I'd be all super nervous, but yeah, it would give me that extra you know, that extra fire to run a little bit extra fast, you know, or when I became paralyzed, you know, it's just like that, that anxiety, I would turn that into energy. You know, I would definitely use that anxiety for, for good. Um, oh, yeah, I'm, sure some, I'm sure sometimes maybe like, I can't say that it was a hundred percent good, you know, and then I'm perfect or anything like that, but yeah, I tried to use it for, for good. But you'd probably question Ashley, and this is that this is going to everybody that's listening to this. 
from a sporting perspective, if you were not nervous, you would probably question what's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I just be like, why, why am I, why am I so relaxed? Why, why am I not pumped up for, for this? You know, why am I not, you know, thinking about what's, what's possible, you know? I, I'm just immediately now even just saying that I'm going back to like my 10 year old self and I'm just like feeling myself like before a game before like a soccer game, you know, it's just like that excitement, you know, to, to play and to touch the ball and, you know, that, that energy of, of play, you know, and to be being a part of that. I loved it. But well, yeah, I think that's, definitely- I think that's why the, the, the people that are athletic minded or play sport once, once in their life, we've always got a positive to go back to. And even if it's a negative experience, it's a learning, it's a learning curve. Um, yes. I'm ever telling to people, well, can you not compartment, com, com, compartmentalize the negative experience from the good? So this is obviously my work, my working life uh, of coaching. And they kind of say, well, they go in tango. Like, no. Uh, you should be able to go back and say, oh, that's good. That makes you happy. That's something slightly different versus fast forwarding into the present and you've got a negative association with that individual or person. And does it to me, to in my mind, it, obviously it's, it's, it's two different things uh, for other people. It might depend. It's it, 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 I'm able to, well, I do it quite easily, but be able to use a ne- negative story f- for me and be able to give a positive spin on it as to this isn't being a negative experience of, okay, you just, you mentioned falling out of a wheelchair. That's a negative experience for you, but there's a life lesson for somebody else. Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. Every, every experience has a great life lesson. And actually I wanted to briefly mention a book that actually I just finished writing. I'm at the very tail end of it. It's called Confined to a Line, and it's about this time in 2010 where I had surgery for a pressure sore, and it basically led to a year long of recovery, bed rest, um, and eight of those weeks were actually spent in a nursing home where I had to be, where I was laying flat on my back to take pills, to go to the bathroom, and to eat. I couldn't even sit up. I was laying flat on my back for eight weeks. And again, most people would say that is just a horrific situation. There was even a nurse um, who I was, you know, smiling and, you know, greeting her. And she was just like, man, if I was in your position, I wouldn't be so happy. But I was just happy. You know, I was happy to to be alive and that I was on the healing path of of recovery, you know, that I knew this wasn't going to last um, and that I knew that everything was going to work out. This was just temporary. And just to give myself patience, you know, day by day and to remain positive and to think of all like the positive things about my experience, you know, not to see like, oh yes, I'm in a nursing home and there's weird smells and I can never sleep and all that kind of stuff. It's like, oh no, no, no. I have a window with a tree. That is fantastic. That is fantastic. I have wonderful nurses and each morning they bring me a warm tub of water and I get to wash my face with warm, with a warm washcloth. And that feels absolutely spe- spectacular. Um, 
again, people get in like these really dark, deep times, you know, whether it's like a job loss or a relationship or 2020 being confined and, and locked down, like, oh, I can't do anything. And when you feel like that, it's so important just to, you know, start with one small thing, just one small thing, even if it is a shower, if it's a warm washcloth, if it's that feeling, that first feeling that you get after the end of the day, when your head hits that pillow and all your own pheromones from your head are on your pillow and it smells all good and you get to get all cuddly and you know, you get to rest and that feeling of relief, even if all day, that one second or that couple seconds is the only thing that you look forward to be conscious of that, know that and give that honor and see that and be appreciative of that. And if you just focus on that, the goodness keeps growing. Sometimes it takes a week. Sometimes it takes a month. Sometimes it could just take it a day or an hour. But I guarantee you, if you're focused on just one good thing and you're like, yes, this is so fantastic. Sooner or later, you'll notice something else that's really good. Oh yeah. You know what? My neighbor, she's just always so fantastic. She always greets me. You know, whenever she sees me, she always brightens my day, you know, or that mailman, you know, but you got to start small. Like life is made up of teeny, tiny, 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 tiny plasma molecule particles. Like we're all made of tiny, 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 tiny. So you have to start at the very, very core of, of life. Those small connections, you know, just the fact that you can go outside and go for a walk and breathe fresh air. When I was going through that pressure sore recovery situation, again, I had spent pretty much a year being inside and there was only a couple times like to go to the hospital there that I would have a brief moment of actually feeling the sunshine and fresh air on my skin and face. And, oh, I savored those moments. I, I still to this day, like I remember those moments. Um, of first getting outside and seeing the brightness of the tree, the light shining through the tree leaves and uh, just the smell of a fall coming and the rain falling and just the feel of, of the moisture in the air, just every little detail um, I, I appreciated and I, and I held on to that. And from that, you know, it just, it just keeps growing. So I always like to tell people that it's okay to like, to feel upset, you know, and to, what I say to go into the, like the deep, dark force of emotions and, you know, have like a pity party. It's okay. Like, and know that it's okay that you do that. Be angry, be upset about it, you know, and just, and allow that to express itself. And then when you're ready, when you're done having your pity party or screaming or whatnot, you know, then start looking for one little stream of light that's coming through that, that forest. Cause I guarantee you it's there. It might be microscopic, but I guarantee you that it's there. And if you keep focusing on just little bits of light, soon enough, you'll just be basically in the sun itself and you'll just be surrounded by light again. I think that's so always, it's always, it's always such a choice, you know, to, to control that, that perspective, you know, of life, you know, saying again, I'm not upset that I'm in a nursing home and I have to do this long recovery and this sucks and the food sucks and everything sucks. And when am I going to get out of here? It's like, no, 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 no. I'm not focused on the future. I'm focused on the fact that I'm being taken care of really well by this nurse today. I am loved. I have water. I have a tree. My body is healing. You know, this is this, there's no, there's no other place that I'm supposed to be, but right here, listening to the alarms go off, listening to the air vents, you know, of, of the hospital, but just really, truly being there. 
And actually I, I would write poems about just what I would see and hear around me just to kind of keep me grounded in that moment. And actually there was this one time that um, there was a fly in my room and it was kind of, I was trying to maybe do like a little meditation or something like that, have a nice little nap or peaceful moment. And I just hear this fly buzzing around, buzzing around, buzzing around. And then it tries to, it's trying to get out of the, out of the window right next to me. So I, every once in a while, I hear it just banging its head, that click, you know, on, on, on the window, you know, and it's kind of annoying, you know, and it's just like buzzing around and click, click, click. And at first I was kind of annoyed of it, but then I'm just like, Ashley, like, why, why? what, what's the point of this? What's, what's the point of you being annoyed at this little fly, just trying to be, all it's trying to do is just to be in the world. And it's just trying to go outside. You know, why, why are you putting so much energy and emotion like about this fly? And so I actually, um, I wrote this poem I just had up. And it's called Compassion for a Fly. And this is how it goes. A fly trapped in my room, trying with all of its heart to escape. It taps on the invisible windows bouncing off like a rubber band, and then tries its luck with the mirror, back and forth, back and forth with all its speed. The thought of a fly in all the dirty places it's been is an irritating concept. Funny how such a tiny creature creates such a feeling for just being. But today, my heart felt for this fly, separated by an illusion from where it naturally is banging its head on the glass in an effort to be free. And so I open the window and guide it to where it wishes it to be. Just kind of like a, a funny, a funny poem, like that I just thought like it would be fun to share just because, you know, nobody thinks about, you know, flies and like what a fly might be, a fly might be feeling, you know, but I feel like, with life and anything, if we're, if we, if everybody just tries to be a little bit more compassionate, you know, to one another and raise that empathy level, which I know we all have, and I'm feeling it. And I love all of you for expressing it and looking out for one another and keep doing that because we need more of that in that world because it allows us all to shine. And, but overall, definitely, I would say from, from this talk, I, I would like to just emphasize again that it's so important to control that perspective and you never know what might happen to you, what might come your way, you know, what job you might lose. You might lose your ability to walk. Um, but there's so much good in this world. So just because something might be taken away from you doesn't mean, yeah, you might've lost something, but you've also gained something as well. And that's what you need to really focus on. And after I became paralyzed, um, I went through a number of different counselors because nobody could really relate to, to what I was going through and nobody, yeah, nobody had the experience. Nobody had like gone through that something as, as traumatic as me, 
but there was this one counselor, the last guy that I had, he was this huge ex-football player, just, you know, six, seven, drove a huge red truck, had thighs, the size of tree trunks, you know, and I, and I loved him just because, you know, here was this big, tough guy and he was, he was a counselor, you know, here he was counseling people and something that I'll always remember, which definitely changed me and helped me getting through that pressure sore and throughout other things was we were sitting on my mom's patio on our backyard patio. And he was like, Ashley, yeah, your mom has such a beautiful garden. Doesn't she like, yeah, she does. My family loves to garden. He's like, yeah, you see those roses on that back fence, those beautiful yellow roses. Yeah. You see those light shining through them. It just looks gorgeous. They just look like gold. They look so beautiful. You can almost smell them. Let's just look at them. And then he was like, oh, wait, wait, wait. But what's this right next to us? Right next to the front door, right next to the front patio door is this bucket of dog shit that your sister, you know, put there because she picked up the dog poop off the lawn earlier this morning and she left it right by this front door. So here we are, we're trying to focus on the roses on the back fence, but our attention keeps getting drawn to this bucket of dog shit right next to us. And his point was, no matter what, do not focus on that dog shit that's right next to you. You need to keep focusing on those roses on that back fence. That's controlling perspective. That's mind power. That will change your life. That will change your world more than you can ever imagine. I appreciate you sharing that, Ashley. As we wrap up the the episode, I, I ask this of every guest. If you had an opportunity to sit down with any athletes, uh, dead or alive for that matter, who would that be and why? Ooh. I know, super cheesy, super cheesy answer, but the first person, honestly, that, that comes to mind is Michael Jordan, <laughs> just because of, of my basketball love and just not even, not even just the amount of championships, because as we talked about earlier, I mean, like, we know, yeah, like, Winning is great and whatnot, but as an athlete, the journey of getting there is where all the glory really is, like to athletes. And so I would just love to to sit down with him and to learn about those behind scene moments when he's going through the training process, not the glory and the championships and being in the games, but just, you know, when he was on his way and he knew that he was good and he would, he would lose a game or maybe he got injured, you know, and how he kept himself going, what was his self-motivational talks and, and, you know, how did he lift himself up to control his perspective, to know that he could keep going? That's what I would definitely want to know because obviously he went all the way. He went all the way. And my final question before before we end the show is, if you had to summarize into one sentence what we spoke about, no, got it wrong, it's a blooper. If you had to summarize what we were speaking about into one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? Controlling perception is the ultimate power of the mind. The short sentence. Yeah, true, very true. So once again, Ashley, thanks again for coming on the Mindset Athlete Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. And I'm sure you might have said this in another 
shows, but I'm just kind of personally curious, who would you want to, what athlete would you want to meet? Awesome. Not one of them again. Um, for me, I want you to say my answer because that's cheating. Um, I'd like to start probably, well, I play wheelchair basketball, so I would probably say, well, he's not alive now, so Kobe Bryant for me because it's, it's a sim- similar yeah. mentality um, that anybody that plays basketball would know that those are probably two recognizable figures of they would go above and beyond yeah. um, their peers. So I, be like, I, I like your answer with Kobe Bryant. And he did come to mind for me, honestly, but I chose Michael Jordan just because I thought with his age at this point that there would be some extra added wisdom. You know, like he, he was he was not like, you know, Kobe, who would probably still be playing. But, um, you know, Michael Jordan, there might be some some things now that he's kind of pieced together over the years that he's that he's learned about his, you know, his younger days. That would be really interesting to know, you know, some of that some of that good grandfather wisdom. <laughs> I don't like to be like he's only in his 60s, though. I think maybe 70s. I think that's grandfather status. Yeah. I mean, I'm in my 40s. I'm middle aged. I'm basically middle aged. So I mean, let's just call it what it what is. It is. <laughs> you know, it's just it's just a number. It's just a number, folks. I mean, we don't have to get all we don't have to get upset about that. <laughs> I was just I was just gonna thank you for for having me on the show. Um, I absolutely love love to travel, and I definitely encourage any and everybody who wants to travel who has fear that you know they can't travel for whatever reason that it is possible you know don't try to travel like everybody else travel the way that you need to travel travel in a way that will bring you joy that will bring you a better perspective on your life and traveling I feel like is such a fun way in order to to test that control of perspective too where you can really be conscious of every single thing that you encounter, good, bad, and ugly, because even in quote unquote, bad things in travel, like for example, when I was in Berlin, only a few stations are wheelchair accessible. So me and my friend wanted to go see a particular attraction. We had to go way far out of our way, you know, to find the next, the closest accessible station. But because of that, we wandered through this amazing garden, and um, marketplace where they were selling all of these old antiques that was super, super local. I mean, it was all locals. It wasn't like a very touristy thing. It was kind of this very underground, you know, local little community park garden thing. And there was music being played. And I felt so grateful. I'm like, yes, it was unfortunate that we couldn't, we couldn't get off at the stop at that we wanted to, that we had planned. But just with the right perspective, with a change of mindset, you're like, okay, I'm now, you know, that doesn't work. So I'm doing this now. What's going to be in front of me? You know, have that positive attitude of, of wonderment being like, okay, yes, that didn't work out, but now I'm here. Let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. And if you have a positive attitude and you're looking for, you know, like the good opportunities of what lays right before you, there's always something. If you're looking, there's always something. So don't get caught up with, you know, your plans and I need to have it this way or that way just be in the moment and control that perspective of what comes at you. So once again, Ashley, thanks again for coming on the Mindset Athlete Podcast.
Yes, thank you so much, James. Thanks again for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode and got loads from it. Anything that was included and discussed will be available in the show notes below. And I would love to hear from you. Come and connect and ask your questions. I've been James Roberts from jamesowenroberts.com. Remember this quote by Chris Hoth. An athlete is a mindset. It's how you prepare, think, and execute, not by some elite status or physical stature. Anybody can be an athlete.